so after LBJ gets elected, there is a formal congressional inquiry into the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and what that leads to is a pronounced and coordinated policing effort against the Klan. The tools that the FBI and other agencies used to do this actually had its most pronounced effect in being applied as well to the opponents of the Klan. The civil rights movement against black nationalist organizations, um, against the anti-war movement later in the 1960s. Giving increased latitude and power to policing organizations without providing oversight can lead to this kind of uh, unintended consequence. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. And before we move on, I want to remind you that the biggest source of St. Louis Public Radio's funding comes from listeners like you. Because you value what you hear on St. Louis on the Air, donate today. Go to stlpr.org donate. That's stlpr.org donate. At his inauguration last week, President Joe Biden cited, quote, a rise in political extremism, white supremacy, and domestic terrorism. He said America, quote, must confront this enemy and, quote, will defeat it. David Cunningham supports this goal, but he also cautions that if history is any guide, and when is history not a guide, it may prove incredibly difficult. Done the wrong way, it could cue a big backlash. David Cunningham is a professor and chair of sociology and arts and sciences at Washington University. He is also author of Klansville, USA, The Rise and Fall of the Civil Rights Era Ku Klux Klan, and he joins us today. David Cunningham, welcome. Thank you for having me. So many of us hearing Joe Biden's words at, at his inauguration felt relief or even joy. But I have to say, few of us have much perspective on how difficult it's been to take down these groups. Are we naive to equate we must confront with we will defeat? Well, I, I share what you're saying about really appreciating the fact that we have a president in office now who, who will place an explicit emphasis on combating white supremacy. And so that aspect of, of what President Biden was saying last week was, was certainly welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, alongside that, I think what we need to be concerned with, though, is the means through which that might happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and to ensure, as, as you mentioned, the backlash is to ensure that the tools that are used and the process that's used there does not have unanticipated consequences that can lead to uh, overreach by agencies like the FBI and an intensified focus on the opponents of white supremacy, if we think about Black Lives Matter, that movement and its allies. Well, I'd like to talk a bit about what you've learned in studying this, because you've gone so deep on this subject. And and a big part of what we want to talk about uh, with you today is what happened in the mid-1960s. What put these groups in the crosshairs at that point? Well, if we go back to the civil rights era during the 1960s, what we saw is certainly a pronounced rise in organized white supremacy. So the Ku Klux Klan was the predominant group then, uh, and the Klan used uh, the rising civil rights tide and the passage of the Civil Rights Act in the mid-1960s as a recruiting tool in effect. So their numbers surged incredibly in 1964 and in 1965. 
Um, and in that instance, they also were subjected, as we see today, they were subjected to increased scrutiny and focus by the federal government. Uh, so after LBJ gets elected, there is a formal congressional inquiry into the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and what that leads to is a pronounced and coordinated policing effort against the Klan. Uh, so this is really about limiting their ability to organize. It's about bringing in uh, counterintelligence tools, which involves surveillance, involves monitoring, but involves active efforts to disrupt the Klan. And on the surface, at least, if we look at the concrete, tangible impact, it worked in the sense that the Klan fairly steeply declined in terms of its presence and its size and its resources by the end of the 1960s. So that sounds like a success story. They took them on, they used all these tactics, and they dramatically decreased in size. What's the catch? Well, I think there are a couple of catches. Um, and I think the most important one I'll start with is that the tools that the FBI and other agencies used to do this actually had its most pronounced effect in being applied as well to the opponents of the Klan. Hmm. So uh, these agencies used this opening, which was really a mandate to target the Klan, as a license to also establish counterintelligence programs against the civil rights movement, against black nationalist organizations. Um, against the anti-war movement later in the 1960s. And if you look at the scope and scale of what the FBI was doing during that period, the most pronounced effect was against the opponents of the Klan and, and, and the more deadly consequences that really stemmed from those actions were not towards the Klan, but were uh, against these other groups. And so uh, one of the things that we just should, should caution about is giving increased latitude and power to policing organizations without providing oversight can lead to this kind of uh, unintended consequence. Hmm. So these techniques, they really pioneered these on the Klan first? Uh, in a lot of ways. I, I think they were first pioneered against uh, communist and socialist organizations mm -hmm. back in the 1950s. Uh, the FBI established what they referred to as COINTELPRO, so it's a, a bad acronym for counterintelligence program. But what they weren't able to do is apply those tools to uh, what were referred to as domestic uh, targets. Mm. And so what the Klan gave license to was the FBI to shift their focus from groups that were seen as an international or global threat to groups that were seen as homegrown. And so the Klan was a, a, a group that had a lot of support in terms of the FBI deploying their tools in that way. But once they had that latitude, it was very easy, given how legislation was written, to then apply it to any group domestically that they saw as a threat to national security. Hmm. I thought it was really interesting to read in your book about how they were developing all these informants within the KKK, and they had great luck developing these informants, and they were using them in ways to sow dissension in those groups, and in some cases to start a rival group to peel off members. It sounds like a lot of these things that we later saw them attempt within the civil rights movement. Yeah, and I think it was more than luck in terms of their success here. I think the FBI uh, had a, a very uh, deep understanding of the motivations of Klan adherents, meaning that they shared some of these foundational values. The Klan saw themselves as highly patriotic. They saw themselves as anti-communist. They saw themselves as in support of law and order in certain ways. And FBI agents really took advantage of that. You know, they, they took advantage of the fact that the Klan tended to respect 
the police, tended to respect agencies like the FBI during that time. Um, and they really shared certain common values that allowed them to develop informants quite effectively. And it really led to a pronounced success in terms of their ability to sow dissent within the Klan ultimately in a way that was more limited in terms of FBI agents' ability to recruit informants into, say, the Black Panther Party or anti-war groups that were more ideologically distant and oppositional to the police and to the FBI. I thought it was interesting to read that as you're writing about these efforts to, to take on these groups in the 60s, there were some police officers, perhaps more on the state police level than at the FBI, who actually had somewhat of an affinity for this message. They went a little bit easier on these guys. It seems like there's some echoes to what we're seeing today on that front. Yeah, when we think about differential policing of different groups, I think we really see the roots of it here. I mean, fundamentally, when the FBI and the state police targeted uh, groups like the Klan, what they were really fundamentally trying to do was control those groups. They weren't necessarily opposed to the presence of a group like the KKK at the time. Hmm. What they were really concerned about is the ability of those groups to commit unpredictable acts of violence and to flout law and order. And so long as they could control that, they really didn't have a stronger opposition to the groups being in existence. So when the FBI does things like uh, initiate their own Klan front organization run by informants, mm -hmm. that was perfectly fine. I mean, what it did was increase the Klan's overall capacity, but the FBI felt like as long as informants were in control and they had information about what these groups were doing, that was entirely fine. But when we look at how they targeted groups on the left, it was entirely different. It wasn't about controlling those groups. It was about a sense that just the mere existence of a group like the Black Panther Party or certain anti-war groups or certain civil rights groups, that was the danger. And what they were really trying to do was eliminate those groups entirely rather than just control them. Hmm. It seems like um, their willingness to have kind of a weak clan or a divided clan, that that did change in, in the late 60s, that they really started taking this on hardcore um, and basically took down uh, the clan as we knew it at that point. Is that fair to say? I think in many ways it's fair to say it's sort of a paradox in the, in the sense that they weren't necessarily aiming to do that, hmm. but since they were so effective in the actions that they were able to take, um, it really did hinder the Klan to that pronounced degree. Um, but, you know, I think we still see echoes of this now when we look at this differential policing in terms of how policing organizations sort of assess uh, the danger posed by groups on the extremist right and when we think of these kinds of hate groups versus the dangers that are posed by, uh, say, the Black Lives Matter movement or, or uh, other allies in that sense. And I think we've seen lots of stark juxtapositions over the last year in terms of the policing of these various groups. We're talking today to David Cunningham. He's a professor and chair of sociology and arts and sciences at Washington University, getting a very interesting history of uh, attempts by the federal government and also local police to take on white supremacist groups, something that Joe Biden says he's going to make a priority. We do need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. And now back to our conversation. My guest today is David Cunningham. He's a professor and chair of sociology and arts and sciences at Washington University. He's also author of Clansville, USA, The Rise and Fall of the Civil Rights Era Ku Klux Klan. Now, David, we were talking about um, what happened when they really came down hard on the Ku Klux Klan in the late 60s. And, you know, one of the bad side effects you talked about is how they later used these same techniques against civil rights groups and, and other groups. Um, and that this was almost a trial run for all that. But there's also another downside to this, I understand from from reading your writing, and that's that stopping the Klan didn't stop racism, didn't even stop people from acts of racial violence. What happened once the Klan was broken up to these people who had these thoughts? Did they just go away? Yeah, it's certainly true that it didn't stop uh, anything uh, around racial violence. And I think two things really happened uh, following the fall of the formal Ku Klux Klan as a mass uh, membership organization. Uh, One is that the real militant core of the Klan really made a move underground. And if you think about the racist right from the 1970s onward, one of the most pronounced changes that we've seen is a move towards more underground organizing, Mm -hmm. uh, cell-based organizing, uh, what is often referred to as leaderless resistance or lone wolf activism. And so what we tend to see is maybe smaller numbers involved in this sort of activity, but to a much more deadly kind consequence. So um, a a much higher willingness to engage in deadly acts of violence and a different kind of capacity to do so. Hmm. So in your opinion, looking back at all this, was the FBI's previous strategy of just kind of containing them and, and keeping them weak and disorganized, was that maybe better than trying to stomp them out entirely? Well, you know, I don't know if, if uh, a direct weighing here will bring us the answer that we might need today in 2021. Mm. But what I would say is that one of the things that the uh, the FBI and other agencies of the sort did not really do is create a more kind of public facing and pronounced emphasis against this sort of organization and against racial violence and against organized racism. Um, And so much of what we're talking about now is really done behind the scenes. And if one of the things, the other, I think, deadly legacy of the civil rights era KKK is the inability to reconcile and consider what it meant to have organized racists in one's midst, in one's communities. Mm -hmm. And since that wasn't really dealt with, you know, one of the things that we see, if you look at social science research on this topic, is a real unanticipated and deep legacy of prior Klan activity. So if you look at where the Klan was active in the 1960s, you can see to this day, those communities have a higher than expected uh, level of 
uh, race-based violence and violent crime in these neighborhoods. Um, we also see much higher levels of political polarization in these communities. Hmm. And really what, what we see is that the Klan provided a basis for people to really dig in and take sides at the time around the civil rights issues. But of course, that got entrenched uh, around broader issues of, uh, related to racial inequity in these communities. And we see highly polarized communities uh, even 50 years later. And we can see it rooted in the organizing of the Klan during that initial period. Hmm. That's so interesting. And and just, uh, boy, it just sets out the magnitude of this problem that we have to deal with here yeah. today. Uh, David, we do have a number of, of callers who have questions for you or want to pick your brain on some stuff. I'm going to go over to the phone lines. And I do want to encourage you, if you have a question for David or you want to join our conversation, our phone lines are open, 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Uh, let's go to Maggie. Uh, she's calling from St. Robert. Uh, Maggie, hi. You're on St. Louis on the Air. Thanks so much, Sarah. Hi. Hi, David. Um, Hi, so I live currently in St. Robert, Missouri, so kind of in the heart of the central Missouri Ozarks. So previously, I lived a little further south in West Plains. When we make that drive back to West Plains these days, I've just been informally tracking the number of uh, Confederate flags that I see hanging outside of people's homes, and those are on the increase. West Plains is even further into the Ozarks and has been an area entrenched in racism where hate groups are still active. If you go to the hate group registry, there are two that are listed, at least presently in West Plains. And when I lived there, I knew of one friend and one acquaintance, both of whom were African-American, that were assaulted at that time. Mm. Additionally, a little further south of there, um, in Sayre, Missouri, when I first moved to town, this is about 10 years ago, there was a sign hanging outside of Sayre, Missouri that that said it was a sundown town, Ooh. and it looked almost like an advertisement sign, and I didn't know what that sign meant at the time. And then when I learned it, I, I went back and saw that the sign was gone. And, and but, Maggie, I um, want to just interject here for, for our listeners who aren't familiar with sundown towns. Um, David, the idea here was basically that if you were African-American, you had to get out of this town by sunset or, or you would be subject to violence. Am I getting that right? That, that's certainly right. And that was true of thousands of towns across the nation, with the Midwest being the real the real heart of that. Okay. So, Maggie, I'm sorry. Uh, continue with, with what you've observed there in the Ozarks. No, thank you, Sarah. I knew we needed to clarify that for listeners who might have been unaware like I was. So, anyway, um, I just have been trying in my own life with my kids to address um, dismantling white supremacy. We do that through our Unitarian Universalist Fellowship, where we've been doing like an anti-white supremacy teach-in, just like learning that we all as products of this culture um, are aware of or aren't aware of the white supremacy that may be present in our lives. And then also through our homeschool group, I've been lucky to be um, welcomed to teach a class called Black History Matters. And so we're just kind of trying to cover Missouri history really thoroughly and make sure that it's covered from multiple points of view. But yet I still see, you know, white supremacy just on the rise all around me. When I first was commuting from West Plains to St. Robert, I saw maybe like under 10 um, uh, Confederate flags, which, of course, is already a horrifyingly huge number, in my opinion. It's now up to almost 20. Last time I drove, I saw 19. Wow. So that's, I mean, that, that's a pretty significant increase that Maggie's spotting there. David, do we have any sense of whether in recent years, if we've seen this sort of increase in, in the level of activity across the U.S.? 
Well, I think it's that, first of all, thank you, Maggie. I appreciate both the work that you've been doing and, and your, your close observation of what's happening here. Um, you know, I think in many ways, we're, we're certainly seeing a pronounced rise in visible public expressions of these kinds of ideas. Um, you know, and I think it's important to recognize that, to be aware of it, and to combat that in the way that you're describing, Maggie. Um, the other thing, though, to think about is one of the lessons of understanding historically trends in organized hate, organized white supremacy, is to really see it as a story that has much more continuity to it than we tend to appreciate. Hmm. Um, we often see particular acts, whether they be hate crimes or particular expressions of racism and white supremacy, as popping up almost spontaneously in certain kinds of environments. And certainly we see a hugely charged environment over the last four or five years. Um, but one of the things that's important to recognize is that this is a fairly constant strain in our political system um, over, you know, the entire history of the U.S., but certainly over the last 50 years. Um, and what is often changing is the degree to which we see open public expressions of this. Hmm. And certainly over the last few years, we have both a charged environment and some, I think, top down from the prior presidential administration support for these kinds of expressions. And so, you know, the ability to fly a Confederate flag as a statement that people see as affirming a particular set of values publicly is something that we wouldn't have seen as pronouncedly seven or eight or nine or 10 years ago, but certainly see now. And so I think it's important to, um, to push back against that trend, but also recognize that the absence of those flags did not necessarily connote the absence of the strain of racism and organized racism societally. Hmm, that's a great point there. Maggie, I want to thank you for that call and, and sharing your perspective and your observation. I think we have time for one more call here. Let's go to Daniel calling from St. Louis. Um, Daniel, hi, you're on St. Louis on the Air. Hello. Yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Thank you for good, joining good. us. My concern is is that on uh, the, the events in the Capitol of January 6th, we saw law enforcement and security forces uh, enabling and collaborating with uh, these people who are, you know, large, a lot of them were white supremacists. I've been aware uh, for many years of um, infiltration and collaboration by law enforcement and security forces at the local and national level uh, with white supremacists. And uh, that's my, I know that uh, mm -hmm. Antifa, that's anti-fascists, have doxxed uh, police officers who have made uh, blatantly racist comments on social media. Mm -hmm. so there's there's been a project that found quite a few of them here in St. Louis. And, and Daniel, I'm sorry, I just cut in. You were just getting to your question. Yeah, is just, uh, can uh, your guests comment on the extent of infiltration and collaboration by local, state, and national law enforcement and security forces with these white supremacists? Daniel, thank you for that. Um, David, any thoughts on that? Yeah, thank you, Daniel. That's such an important question um, and a really pressing phenomenon. I, I think for years we've seen documentation of the phenomenon you're describing, which is um, at times active either sympathy or direct collaboration with white supremacist forces within law enforcement. Um, I, I think 
that there has not been a serious and sustained effort to engage with that issue and rectify that issue. Um, there is not necessarily strong or consistent vetting of law enforcement officers in this way or severe consequences that officers are faced in this in, for this reason. Um, I also think that alongside these instances of direct collaboration, we have to think more deeply about how law enforcement agencies and organizations engage with the threats posed by organized white supremacy. Um, one of the things that we see, and we can see this very clearly in Charlottesville in 2017, we can see it clearly certainly at the Capitol earlier this month, is that if you look at how policing agencies uh, vet intelligence information, information that they have about potential acts of violence coming from the far right, there is a pronounced tendency to underemphasize the threat of violence posed from that side, while simultaneously overemphasizing the potential for violence that we see when groups like Antifa or uh, Black Lives Matter or groups like that are organizing. And so, you know, we've probably all seen many of these side-by-side -side comparisons of what the policing response looked like throughout the summer of 2020 when Black Lives Matter would be organizing in various places, including D.C., um, versus what we saw at the Capitol. And I think that's a deeper issue within the police in terms of how they gather engage with and assess the intelligence information they have about these potential threats and how these, in effect, racist assumptions can be built into their assessment of this information and then the way in which they operationally deal with these potential threats. Hmm. Well, Daniel, I want to thank you for that question. Um, it's such an important issue there. And and David, just getting to pick your brain today, what a fascinating topic this is. I feel like we barely scratched the surface, but I want to thank you so much for giving us this history that you've given us. I think just learning um, about some of these ebbs and flows and things being pushed underground and coming back up, it's it's kind of, um, I don't know, it, it's almost frightening to realize the magnitude of the task ahead of us. It, it sounds like if there's anything we should take away from history, it's that this is not going to be simple at all to do what President Biden has set out to do. That, that's certainly true. And, and vigilance along these lines is going to be really key. And I think public, the public pressing uh, President Biden and the administration harder in this direction will be really pivotal. David Cunningham, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.